Hi, everybody. This is Kevin O'Donohue, licensed New York State mental health counselor. And this is Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma-informed bodywork therapist. And this is The Positive Mind. Bringing you some ideas, concepts, and guests to try and help you lead a more positively-minded life. And you know, it's an interesting life. We have a guest today, and I have a little history with this guest, although not in person. You know, in the 90s, I saw this book right on the table there at Barnes & Noble, your local... Remember those stores? Barnes & Noble. And they had these display cases as soon as you walked in. And there was this title, Getting Through the Day, you know, amidst all of the biographies of the political figures. And then Getting Through the Day. I said, hmm, I don't know if I could read a book about that. I'll I'll put it off for another time. Well, it's 30-some years later. I, I get to meet the author and talk about the book, Getting Through the Day, Strategies for Adults Hurt as Children by Nancy J. Napier. Nancy, welcome to The Positive Mind. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here because, you know, now I've dipped into the book and I was like, wow, I could have used this book 35 years ago. If you want to streamline and speedline your life, get this book, Getting Through the Day. Whether you were hurt as a child or not sure if you were hurt as a child, um, and who wasn't hurt as a child, then this book is going to be a big, big help to you. So we are so privileged to have Nancy J. Napier here today to talk about that book and many other developments, many other things. You haven't been doing anything else since then, have you? (laughs) Well, (laughs) actually, the biggest thing that has happened since then was when I took the training in somatic experiencing and became faculty. And that has literally changed my practice. However, I have to admit that my deepest foundation is with hypnosis. And the just, I am a consciousness junkie and having learned hypnosis and then somatic experiencing, our consciousness is simply stunning. And when it's, when it's focused on healing, really wonderful things can happen. Even when we have a lot of pain, we have to plow through. We're, we're all potential Einsteins, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 When, when did hypnotherapy enter the picture? Um, I had my, my most intensive hypnosis training in 1983. I was in a year long program and Shortly after that, I began to work with parts with the public. I started doing public workshops at the New York Open Center. And that then evolved into a specialization in working with dissociative disorders, which then evolved into teaching and consulting and things kind of just evolved. So hypnotherapy is one thing you haven't let go of. Not at all. Right. That, I mean, I am, I, my training was as a long-term psychodynamic psychotherapist. So I'm very committed to tracking relationship dynamics and the healing places that relationships need to enter Mm. into a therapy process. But hypnosis spoke to, and, and getting through the day as well as my first book, Recreating Yourself, are very hypnotically based, self hypnotically based. Hypnosis lets us touch into this stunning creativity we each carry inside. And it opens the door to ways of healing that just talking can't quite bring us to. 
I'm so excited to have Nancy on the show today. I've studied with Nancy. I learned somatic experiencing from her back in 2014 and have continued to sort of drop into her classes and her workshops along the way. And something you're mentioning about the intersection of childhood parts and where we kind of find ourselves as adults and this stunning creativity and how we kind of lose it if we're not aware of sort of the traumatic impact that's kind of lurking in the background. It was really groundbreaking for me to to sort of witness this work and be able to help people separate out and sort through like what's then and what's now and what's... How do you do it? You know that there was a disruption or you know that you've lost contact with your creativity You've lost contact with your emotions. Last week, we did a show on alexithymia. And Uh so you've you've lost contact with your emotion. If you suspect maybe I had trauma, maybe I didn't. I don't know. My parents were basically decent. How do you know? Well, I think one of the things is the first thing I would do is go to the definition that Peter Levine, who created somatic experiencing, uses to, and I'm putting trauma in quotes here now because His definition of trauma is anything that is too much, too soon for that particular nervous system. So because of that, we can't judge for anybody else what constitutes trauma. You know, I was saying earlier in a conversation that one of the things that the somatic experiencing approach has offered, I think is one of the most important gifts to clients is to move away from pathologizing and judgment and to understand that whatever our too much too soon experiences might have been, the body is organized to allow us to survive. And it doesn't worry about being particularly elegant about that. So Mm -hmm. if shutting down is the way that we stay psychologically intact, the, the nervous system isn't going to worry whether that's working out in the world or not. It's done the job of not overwhelming us so that we're, we're rendered psychotic or we can't function. We, we just, right. so part of what Nisima brought up that I think is one of the biggest, what we call in SE overcouplings where, where the nervous system gets tangled is between then and now. And it goes into the realm of, implicit memory versus explicit memory. Explicit memory is the stuff we can all talk about. Like, oh, you know what? Yesterday I went and had an ice cream and I really loved it. It's on a timeline. You know it's over. It's over there. Implicit memory is when something arises. And even when you know it's irrational, it feels imminently dangerous or threatening and you can say to yourself this is crazy but the body is going no 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 this is a trauma signal so so i'm just saying this could tie into what we're going through as a country right now and each of us individually i know for me when i'm isolated or and you know for me to admit loneliness is really hard, but it's you, it's unavoidable to confront this foreign feeling that I've been running from my whole life. Let's say loneliness, and right. now we're going through a pandemic. It's like, oh, I must have felt this when I was young as well. But the minute you can even say that, the fact that you're even saying that, you're already starting to make the distinction. You're saying, wow. 
I'm feeling something now that I bet I felt when I was young. Right away, you've got a more whole brain going because your observer is noticing there's a then and a now. When this implicit memory comes up without that, you're, you're off to the races to try to fix it, change it, move it, do something with it because mm-hmm. you're not aware. I'm probably having a memory feeling right now. So we want to cultivate for people just exactly what you just described. I could see because it could be dangerous otherwise. Your life could be really, you could act out those feelings. Like I feel lonely and I'm going to go out and drink or I'm going to go out. People do. People do. Uh, This is the sad part. You know, when the amygdala gets firing, that part of the brain that responds to threat if the if the if the observer isn't online to say, "Wow, I'm really triggered right now," we do act out. We all do, and it's because the survival system is just on wheels. It's like zero to a hundred in no time at all. When there's not that awareness, I'm remembering something from a long time ago. So this could really play into, um, like, say, the person who the minute you know they heard they had to wear mask was like, there's no way I'm wearing a mask. They couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And that sounds like somebody who's being ruled by some sort of implicit memory of, You're I'm not, not going to me. obey authority. No. I would I would be curious about, was that person controlled? Did they feel helpless in an unbearable way? Did they have boundary intrusion where they didn't have the right to say no? There are a lot of ways that could go. But yes, if someone's that knee-jerk, whenever we're knee-jerk, it's worth asking the question, gee, I had that response really fast. Let me just take a moment to see if there's some part of me that's gotten activated about maybe something other than what this, what I think it is. Right. Right. So, I, I, I mean, I've been part of all these Zoom meetings, as everybody has been through this pandemic. And one question that somebody asked before a meeting was, how is how you reacted to the pandemic rooted in your childhood and and i could see a direct link i said uh, first there was denial i mean it took me four to six weeks to actually even believe and that was purely connected to my father my you know we always poo-pooed anything that was serious anything that society took seriously Uh, and you know the longer you held out against what society was thinking the more man the more manly you were you know, so I I could see how when you're reacting in a way that is so different from everybody else in your world, right. then maybe there's this hint that yes. this has a record somewhere. So you're really bringing up a point that I think is awfully important. And, and sometimes we can do this on our own and sometimes we need a, a therapist or a guide of some kind is it really makes a difference when we know our own triggers. Makes a huge difference when we know what are my issues. They're the place I'm going to fall in the hole. And if I know I'm falling in the hole, then at least I can be processing it with my awareness instead of just reliving it yet one more time. Because here's the thing that for me is so moving. These implicit trauma memories feel completely real and valid when they come up. They're not coming up as a maybe or 
gee, I kind of feel, they are coming up as absolutely true and real. And it's why I think things like mindfulness practices, not, not arduous mindfulness meditation, but mindfulness practices of learning to notice and be curious, to get to know ourselves. Now, I'm saying something that for people who have been immersed in a shaming environment, it's extremely challenging to get to know yourself because in a shaming environment, anything that we're not doing, quote, correctly goes right into the shame pot. So if we're reacting in a way that seems irrational or not to our benefit, for people who are piled high with shame, it's very hard to say, wow, I'm, I'm a little off the wall right now. Mm. So I do also think, and, and this is not an area I've done a lot of study in, but I think all the work now on self-acceptance and self-compassion, I think that work is extremely important because one of the roads toward healing that for me is primary is our willingness to embrace our wholeness. And in order to embrace our wholeness, we have to be willing to embrace what we're not able to do and where we're not very elegant. And where we do lose it is to be able to know, okay, that's part of all of which I am. But if we've been shamed within an inch of our life, that's really challenging to do. See, I, 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 the point you make, I think, is so important for healing is this idea of judgment. We all carry around judgment. And how can you make any progress when you're, when you're judging yourself? I think the first step in all therapy, and I know I'm making progress with a client when instead of judging themselves or their partner or somebody, they get curious about it. Oh, let me exactly. let me really bypass my anger at this and really get curious and, and how ingenious it was for me to come up with this way of dealing with it instead of judging myself. Exactly. Well, Jack Cornfield, the mindfulness teacher, says about judgment, these brains will generate judgments. That's just what they do. Yeah. What we can do something about is exactly what you're saying, is our relationship to those judgments. And I encourage people, I have a weekly practice that I post on my website. And at the bottom, I always say, remember to bring along curiosity as your constant companion and to pat gently on the head any judgments that arise, letting them just move on through. You don't have to wrangle with a judgment. You can just notice it, pat it on the head and let it go. And re I love what you're saying. Replace it with curiosity. That's really a fabulous practice. To me, the next step would be to like welcome triggers. Look at your triggers. Most people don't want to look at their triggers. Right. Uh, right. Because, you know, it's often it's going to bring up frustration and anger. And who wants to feel that? But if you could make a list of your triggers and get curious about them and see when they arise... Now we're talking about getting access to those implicit memories. Well, and just one quick, you've already started then to befriend yourself. It took me a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, and I'm kind of I'm thinking about backing it up a little bit to like, how do you make that step to recognize that you're living like a triggered life? When does that become an awareness. And I think that can be a very difficult time for people because you might feel very empowered by your triggers. Like, oh, you, you know, you said something wrong to me. I'm back with a lot of anger. I can defend myself. Yeah. You know, I'm powerful in my, you know, trigger me and I'm 
powerful or I can yeah. or I'm emotional, I'm sensitive. You know, all these things that we identify with so strongly and like it's a great question Nisima and you know I wonder I'm having two thoughts cuz that's really the key question of of all of how do we do this at all and I, two things come to mind. One is the very um challenging process of helping people start to feel their body and what are their different states like and does a trigger i hear what you're saying you're right about anger triggers they can feel very powerful do they feel organizing do they feel like they are helping you be more competent and i would guess that with some people the only way you could bring awareness to triggers as a possible dilemma is by having them look at the outcomes of acting on those triggers because i think for most of us acting on our triggers doesn't work out very well if we if we track that over time and you could maybe then help a person see there might be more effective ways to move through this but of course gosh it's such a big it's such a big thing because we also want to work the trauma behind the triggers yeah right which will automatically take away some of their punch and from what I've learned, we also need to work on building the capacity to have different options. Absolutely. Well, and to be uncomfortable. You know, I think I mentioned in every workshop, one of the first things I used to ask new clients when I was taking on people, especially people who had come in with dissociation, one of my first questions early in our initial consult was, are you willing to be uncomfortable? Because if you're not willing to be uncomfortable, you're not going to want to do this work. And uncomfortable in a way you're, you're not familiar with. I mean, right. I think really good therapy is going to be you're going to get in touch with a feeling that you haven't met in a long time. That's right. what we talk about, real discomfort. And that you don't want to have. And I think one of the things in working with dissociation is people are not so happy and thrilled to be getting back their feelings. Because dissociation helps the functioning to happen without having to feel uncomfortable. So let's let's talk about dissociation because it seems to me to be like the alternative to the observing self. I mean, a lot of people in childhood they didn't have an observer, and so they created these separate identities. Let's say these different parts. When you have an observer self, you can see all. You correct me because you're the well, pro. Well, children don't have an observer because they don't have their cor their prefrontal cortex fully online yet. Right. When I got into the SE training, I was really moved by the way SE looks at dissociation. It defines dissociation as an activation signal. And then you you can play with the continuum of dissociation, like how intensely dissociated is something. But what I think of it as being is it's, it's like a placeholder for unmetabolized, overwhelming feelings. This is, again, who knows how all this works. This comes from the wisdom of the body-mind to just put something way outside awareness. It's like on, an every, on a more everyday level, this is not so every day, but let's say you're in a car accident and you need to get away from that car because you don't know if it's going to catch on fire. And let's say your leg is broken. Your nervous system is set up that you can probably run away from that car. 
-hmm. and not fall down from the pain mm -hmm. because of a kind of dissociation that allows you to accomplish that survival right. routine. It's pretty much, I think, the same way when we dissociate major kinds of experiences that the system simply can't process and function. And so they, they kind of travel with us as things that pop in and out of the foreground. And I want to talk a little along the way about foreground background dynamics, but the problem with dissociation, I thank goodness for it because it has saved a lot of people of in really terrible histories, but it doesn't work very well as an adult because these dissociated states pop in as the perspective on reality for that given amount of time. And people can behave in ways that can put them at risk. And, and if, you, if, you, if you're newly married <laughs> and one of these things comes out, like, wow, I'm married now and this person is showing me parts of themselves they never showed me before. Right. Um, and, and the goal is how to metabolize, how to process and integrate what those parts of the self hold. There needs to be such an education around the potential for that, because I think yeah. people don't understand that this can be metabolized. It takes some time, right. but it really, you, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to live like this. Exactly. And, and, what, and the beauty of metabolizing, integrating, digesting these unmanageable feelings is that in your wholeness, you, it's, like, it's like reclaiming all the colors of your rainbow. You have all the options to still feel whatever that part might have held, but not in a trauma state. So let's say the part is an enraged part that just wants to push away everybody. When that gets metabolized, you can still be angry, but you're not going to be angry fighting for your life. Right. And right? Go ahead. So it's accepting yeah. all of these parts. I mean, I want to make... I want to say to our audience, first of all, there's a diagnosis, right? Dissociative identity disorder. That's the extreme. That's the extreme where people come up with an invent because mommy's beating me all the time or, we, you know, or whatever, that they invent a different persona or multiple personas in themselves. It's fascinating to imagine and the I power of the mind to be able to do this in order to survive. And it's stunning. And I would only change one thing. To say they invent it sounds like they know what they're doing. The psyche okay. does that to protect the overall. One of the to to me one of the truly fascinating things. This is part of why I'm a consciousness junkie. Truly fascinating thing about dissociative disorder is that different states can have entirely different physiologies. You can even have different eye color. You can have different diseases, different allergies. But this is, has nothing to do with any conscious choice on mm. the part of the person. It's something in our wholeness that, that does this for us. It's, well, it's totally fascinating. And it makes sense because when I'm really angry, I become another person. I mean, and my body feels not like my reg regular body. Or well, the same yeah. thing with shame and when I feel fear. Exactly. I You're could feel like I'm a 12-year-old or a 5-year-old. And you probably are in terms of the implicit memory. You pro Here's the other thing. Thank you for saying that. Because I think when we go into an implicit memory, let's say as a 5-year-old, 
I think we're literally going back into the five-year-old nervous, nervous system. So it feels as overwhelming today as it felt back then because that's the nervous system we're accessing that hasn't yet. It's almost like these unmetabolized aspects of self are caught on the timeline. They're not keeping up with everybody. They're not keeping up with our overall development. So we fall into them and all of a sudden we're five years old and we're probably thinking with a five-year-old brain. Actually, that's another distinction. I always like to help clients develop a felt sense awareness of the difference between their child brain, which is very similar to the trauma brain, where everything is black or white, either or, no options, and the adult fully functioning brain, which is both and, and lots of options. That's a really important distinction. You know, and Nisima, I'm guessing it works this way with body work too, but my feeling is when we're working with people, we are their auxiliary observer. And we're there to help point out, whoa, I wonder which brain you're in right now. What do you think? Because you're noticing, ooh, they've dropped over into some black and white thinking where there's literally no option here. Let me bring to their awareness what that feels like. Because over here is the grown-up brain, but that doesn't sound like where you are. Yeah, I find it happens when somebody can, can like finally release maybe into some support. Yes. And yes. that and that and that sort of like something kind of organizes in the system and kind of brings them back to to here now. And and that's when they actually can relax because yes. so much tension is about that held past and those held states. And like if they and, and it can be really difficult to allow that one percent of relaxation, that one percent of like a new state of being in the muscle, being in the body, ugh, you know, being a little heavier on the table. Well, and it seems to me in that 1% of settling, you've separated present day from the threat of settling that was true in the past. You've had a a 1% update of the file, right? Where the body has had that moment of learning, oh, I can let go and nothing bad is happening. Wow, that is like unexpected. And actually something nice is happening. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to say we're about to go to our musical break. We're we're with Nancy Napier, author in 1994 of Getting 93. 93. And I remember seeing it, Getting Through the Day. Boy, do I have a much different reaction to the title now than I did in 93. And unfortunately, I didn't follow that reaction in 93. This is not a powdery book. I mean, I thought it was like going to be, oh, it's one of those like – woe is me books and I'm opening the book and it's like filled with strategies and I exercise and ideas and science and real depth and very good writing by the way did you major in English in college no but I do love writing it's my <laughs> uh, so this is no like sort of fluff book this is a real tight real book I really wished I had picked it up back in the day oh, getting you. through the day we're going to come back and talk more about dissociation. And how do you know if you are stuck? I mean, how do you know if you've come from trauma or had experiences where you had to jump out of the car, let's say, psychologically? You had to dissociate. You had to disappear and just show up as the person that was acceptable um, rather than the person maybe who you really were. We're going to be talking more about that when we come back from our break with Nancy Napier.
And we are back with The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue here with... Nasima Diane Deemer. And Nancy J. Napier and her book, Getting Through the Day, Strategies for Adults Hurt as Children. And we have a lot to cover again in this second half hour. We want to talk about how do you know if you're stuck? So, Nancy, before the break, I asked about triggers. Everybody can relate to triggers, or maybe not everybody. I mean, do people know that they're triggered? And how can they get back in touch with something earlier that, that may, maybe could heal the present-day situation? Is there a way to illustrate this for people that they could say, oh, yeah, I do have that reaction in those situations, and that well, leads to something else? Maybe the, the operative word is reaction. That we can, that people can be invited to notice where, where do you react rather than respond? Oh, great! Kind of making that distinction because I think once we know what it feels like to have the difference between reacting and responding, at least then we can kind of know. I've got a lot of energy behind this. You know, it's like this is. I'm like really riled up about this. I'm sort of three feet off the ground. Maybe I'm reacting. That and, would be a trigger. Let's and it say, feels like there's no choice in how I react. There's no choice. I am. You say this, I'm going to be angry. I'm there. No it could even be someone looks at me. Like I remember when I started teaching, I had the most terrible speaking phobia on the planet. I really did. It was like. It was enough that made me want to just die overnight before doing a presentation. I was so scared, so scared. And because of that fear, which would get triggered when I had to be in front of people, I would look at people's faces. <laughs> you know, it's like a Rorschach test. You're just looking at people's faces from your trigger, seeing right. things <laughs> thing are happening, right? Mm. So uh, it can be tone of voice. It could be the look on someone's face. It could be someone turning away because they're having to do something could trigger somebody. Mm-hmm. It could be, you could be triggered by um, seeing something happening on the street that might be violent or painful. I, I, taking my cat to the vet, she yells all the way. People had an entire range of responses to hearing her distress cries. I had some people who literally jumped out of the way because they didn't know what was happening. That was a trigger compared to people who just turned around and looked and kept walking. Mm. But we don't, we don't want to ever judge people's triggers because we don't know how they got wired in that way. I know that when I'm speaking to three or four or five people or more, and one of them gets up to leave, I yeah. am I create like a volume, you know, a three thousand page book about what I'm true. doing, and it's totally, you know, they had to go to the bathroom maybe. So, right. so there's a trigger, there's a reaction for sure. That's right. For That's sure. right. You're not responding; you're reacting. So, what's the mechanism of the trigger? Okay, so the mechanism, and you're going to help me with this to make it clear, <laughs> there is this concept in somatic experiencing called overcoupling. There's a quotation from years ago that says, neurons that fire together, wire together. So let's say a little kid gets hit by a friend or beaten up, let's say, in front of a blue car. And then later... As an adult, 
this person sees a certain color blue and their body goes into a total anxiety attack. That's an overcoupling. The, the brain has said blue is dangerous. Okay. So that person gets triggered every time they see that color blue. Let's say a kid grows up in a house of a lot of screaming. As an adult, and that screaming, I think a lot of times when kids hear screaming, part of the overcoupling that happens is the potential danger, not the actual danger, but the potential danger. So then they grow up as an adult and they're walking into their building, let's say if they're in New York City, and someone's screaming at someone. And all of a sudden they have a rush of adrenaline and they feel in danger. Again, it, the brain has wired together that screaming equals potential violence. We all have triggers. I don't think there's any living, breathing person who doesn't have We all have couplings, too. Yes, exactly. We have have healthy couplings that we create when we're learning to drive a car, ride a bike, do stuff. Those are perfectly non-trauma over-couplings, couplings that help us. These trauma-based couplings, are, it goes back to uh, Nassim's person who can just relax 1%. That's because there's an overcoupling between relaxing and something bad happening. And I find that with a lot of people. And, and I'm also curious because right now a lot of people are talking about how it's very hard to sleep during this pandemic, even though it's really quiet outside. Right. And my sense is that there's an underground sort of background feeling that if I go to sleep, I'll die. Because there's this threat that is mm. unseen. It could be here now. It, the, the pandemic is, has massively triggered almost everybody because most of us, not everyone, lucky for them, but most of us have threat couplings where we don't know when the next bad thing is going to happen. And this pandemic is perfect for eliciting that kind of uncertainty. It's a great opportunity for families that are sitting down together at dinner to explore what is getting triggered in you one week to the next. I've been talking about the texture of each week is different. Yes. Every week is different during this. The more you, you know, the longer it goes on. Right. You know, it's really an invitation and, and because... How could you not be triggered or how could you and, not be right. reacting? We're living I, totally differently than normally and probably never will again. So, And the people, I would venture to say, and this is an unscientific comment, but I would venture to say people who have developed an observer awareness, who are able to, to notice and be present to what they're aware of, are are able to use these triggers and work them during this time to metabolize more of what right. they carry. Right. We all carry stuff. Are you finding and, that yourself? Like you've you've been this has been a rich period for you to observe triggers well, and as I was saying to you before we started to record, I when I with the with my cat and the vet and going into a very young child state around not being able to comfort her and having her run away from me. I really, I rode that. I, I used it and I, and I got a lot, a lot got metabolized, but I have years and years of, of knowing how to be with myself, which makes a big difference. It's the reason I think all of us can benefit from a kind of therapy where we learn 
to be with ourselves in a compassionate, aware way so that when this kind of stuff comes up, we can do the things that are needed to help metabolize and process that through. And I think a lot of people are actually doing that because people are getting triggered left and right. So I'm I'm thinking about this word metabolize. And a lot of times my clients will come in and they want to discharge. Oh, yes. Mm. I know from my training that that's not always the best thing to do. Discharge can become what we call a habituated response. And the problem with habituated responses, we all have varieties of them, is they just take us on a sidestep. They don't really let us enter the experience and ride it all the way through. You know, we can think of metabolizing, as one of my colleagues says, it's like being a surfer, getting on the wave, but you ride it all the way to shore. And that's the metabolizing of the process. But if we're discharging just to have the relief of that moment's shift of energy, we're not riding the wave all the way to shore. We're not reorganizing our responses. So discharging's fine in certain kinds of trauma, and I'm a great fan of it if you've been in a car accident or you've fallen down and your body needs to reorganize itself. But otherwise, what you really want to be doing is reorganizing, digesting, integrating, tolerating, and building capacity for these feelings to be able to arise, move through, become part of what you know about yourself, and then move on. So I'm thinking it's really uh, a good thing for therapy to be discharging. I mean, I could also see exploring, let's see visually what this discharge looks like. Like, let's see the whole wave of it. What comes up? Because as a man, I often feel like I can see when I'm really angry, I can get a whole narrative. I can see pictures. I can really play it out in my mind. And it's one of the rare times that I can see a thing like that, is to see a a whole storyboard, let's say, when I'm triggered and have this kind of emotion. So if I go into a therapist's office and I want to discharge that, I could see it being therapeutically beneficial to say, let's wait. Let's see what is behind this. What would it look like? If you didn't do that, what would you be feeling? Right. would be the main question I would ask. If you didn't just go with that, let's just hang out and see what's right behind it. What would you be feeling Mm. in the background? Can I have both? Can I do the discharge and get to the feeling that's behind it? Because usually it's a feeling of helplessness, right? I'm feeling helpless. I'm feeling... Here's the problem with habituated responses. They're fine. They feel fine. They do the discharge, but they they are not optimizing your ability to organize a new response. Absolutely. I get it. Right. And I often have clients being a body person, they'll come to me with chronic pain or chronic sort of movement things. And, and it's a hard thing to ask them to do. But I often ask them like, just if we cannot do that movement. That's right. That's exactly right. What happens instead? And last night, it was interesting, this client was like, yeah, I have like a burning in my arm. And then she wanted to, you know, kind of retreat from her to do something. I'm like, can you just stay with the burning? And then it was like, well, my whole body feels like it's burning. It's like, just always checking in. Are you okay with just staying with that burning? And it's like, you start, she started to have sort of a realization. It's like, wow, I think I've been avoiding this sensation for a long time. So it's like, can we build a little bigger container to feel that? And be okay at the same time. 
Because while you're doing that at a, at a fundamental body motor system level, you are reorganizing the response into a new option. Yeah. You're expanding the possibility of responses. You know, one of the things we've always said in SE is through all this trauma work, we're not trying to take anything away. We're wanting to expand options so that when you get triggered, you have more places to reach into. So I want to say one quick thing about foreground background. Before you do that, I want to ask you this question, because in my readings in positive psychology, there's something called uh, post-traumatic growth. And I, okay. I want to hold this out to everybody out there. It's yes. not just, you know, oh. people that are severely traumatized, but anybody. I think trauma in itself is a growing experience. And if it doesn't destroy the the system's capacity to respond, it's it's an absolutely amazing growth opportunity. Yeah. And because we're all here in this body, the body has survived. We've chosen yes. to survive. It can yep. be used as a growth opportunity opportunity absolutely that's and if this goes back to the pandemic for a moment we were saying and i think it's true that people who are able to be present to their process are gaining a lot of deepening from this time because it's sort of like there's nowhere to go (laughs) so we're with ourselves right right and people who are able to utilize that i i have enormous respect for and faith in the creativity of our wholeness and what who and what we are as organisms and i do believe at the that the most basic thing about us is a fundamental resilience human beings are ridiculously resilient yes yes um, so let me just say some quick stuff about foreground background because it's yeah. something i teach all my clients and, and your thing about the anger reminded me of it because the helplessness is in the background. At that point, the foreground has gotten filled up with the anger. Right. But there's also, for people who will resonate with it, I teach them about the, the infinite field of stillness that is behind every thought, every feeling, every urge, every action that's right behind us i lean into the stillness all the time because it's always there in the background i mean i might be busy 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 up here in the foreground but when i remember that in the background there is stillness there's a place to rest but when you're thinking in terms of parts and parts work sometimes a child part pops into the foreground but the present day adult self is always there in the background It may just have slid back out of awareness. And one of the things I use at my office, I have a kaleidoscope that I bought in Sausalito a million years ago. It's gorgeous. It has mostly clear and frosty white pieces of glass in it, but there are a couple of pieces of bright orange and bright royal blue, and I think there's purple, but not very much. So you turn... I always have clients turn and turn. They watch the patterns change and all of a sudden orange pops out. And what I remind them is just as with the kaleidoscope, nothing has been added and nothing has been removed. It's just foreground background shifts. So we have all these aspects of ourselves. They're part of our wholeness. We can't 
not have them. But we want to know it's just a matter of foreground background. We're not losing anything. We don't have to go out and add anything. We're wanting to turn the pattern so that other things can come into the foreground. And I think that a lot of our resources get stuck in the background. And that it's wonderful when we have ways of just inviting people to bring into the foreground what is already right about them and whole. You talk about noticing what's right instead of this habit of noticing what's wrong. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that? Because I'm thinking on an international scale in politics and in, in, in relations between nations. Like how do we get them to see the background? There is well, keep- st- there's stillness. There's peace. That's our goal. That's, you know, that's sure. the basis for everything. <laughs> and in the foreground might be, you know, uh, the price of gasoline, you know. <laughs> Some- well, here's the problem. The brain as a survival organ orients to what's out of place. It's looking for, is there a lion at the watering hole? So we have to cultivate, I think, the, the sense of looking for what's right. I mean, I remember in the old days when solution-focused therapy first started to come on board and couples therapists would have couples call in to have an appointment. And the first thing they would ask them when those people would actually come into the office they wouldn't allow them to talk about the problem. They'd say, so what's gone better since you made your appointment? It made people crazy because everybody was used to looking for what was out of place and your solution-focused therapy saying, wait, wait, let's see what's gone right. But we can cultivate that in ourselves. Gratitude practice cultivates yes. what's going right. Uh, it's habit. Our brain habits as humans unfortunately go towards survival so we literally have to cultivate kindness we're kind by nature but it gets yes popped into the background i could see it like with couples i say well notice the positive qualities you married him for or her for a reason you've forgotten about these positive qualities but they're still there where are they go find them Hmm. they've popped into the background right another thing that I really appreciate about Nancy is that she has this beautiful website. It's nancynapier.com. And on the website, she's been posting every week a beautiful blog, a meditation. She has audio. It's all like free and available. And, you know, for listeners out there, you can just go and, you know, tap into this amazing resource to start to feel your, you know, stability, your stillness, your capacity. And um, there was a a posting on uh, May 23rd, and you titled it Orienting to Solution-Focused Awareness and Helpful Mm -hmm. Archetypes. And I'd like, if you're you're willing, I'd love to invite you to maybe lead us through a little bit of that meditation that you talk about, about how to sort of tap into the rightness. Sure, I'd be happy to. And also, one thing I wanted to be sure to mention is on YouTube, I have posted what I call a meditation on wholeness and presence. And I just think it's a worthwhile meditation to play with because the more we can embody and appreciate all aspects of our being, I think the more empowered we'll be when we go out into the world to see what's going right there when we're able to see what's right about ourselves. So in terms of this particular meditation, you might just take a moment to think of a quality that you'd really like to have as part of your experience of your life. It might be kindness, it might be compassion, it might be 
a sense of wholeness. It might be anything I don't even know how to name. So let me ask you to take a moment to choose that quality and then bring your awareness to what is supporting you right now if you're sitting down or lying down. If you're standing up, feel your feet under the, the surface under your feet. But the key thing is to settle into an awareness of your body. And I'm going to invite you to start by becoming aware of your skeleton. Just becoming aware of how your spine connects from the base of your skull all the way down to the base of your spine and how the support of your skeleton gives your body shape, supports your ability to be here. And just feeling as you perhaps follow the next out breath down into your body, notice your internal center of gravity, your internal home base. You might notice or you might not, you can just check and see Often when we are able to settle into what is our internal landing place, our own presence, we discover that there is an ever-present steadiness in the background of our awareness. We may not be aware of it all the time, but it's always there. So just notice what you discover as you settle into your body and into yourself. You might even notice the environment around you, what support you receive just from the space around you. And then bring to mind the quality that you would like to see in your life. You might see it as an image, you might hear it as a sound. You might feel it as a sensation in your body. And the most important thing here, if you can, is to experience it as a sensation. For example, if you are resonating with kindness, what does that touch in your body? How does that feel? to be with the living essence of kindness. And one of the things you can do with this kind of meditation that's very powerful is after sitting for a while, however long you decide to do that, with the quality you've chosen, take a moment to notice what would happen if you moved through your world today radiating that quality what if that quality emanated from you out into the world around you what would that quality bring you you might see it in others you might notice the world responding to it carry it with you as you move through your daily activities and so that's just an example of this kind of settling in, the steadiness in your body, the, the fact that we can resonate with any quality we choose every day and you know, have an 
impact on the world around us. It strikes me that this is something we humans can do. Yes. You know, all the other species and beings in the universe maybe don't have access to this. We can envision equality and have that radiate our whole being. Exactly. Have it impact because I am a great believer in what we radiate into the world has an effect, but I'm also a believer in oneness. So I think we're all affecting each other in every minute. So the more whole we can feel, the more compassionate and kind we can feel, we're, we're doing something active for ourselves and for our world when we're able to do that. It sounds like a great tool to get through the day. I'm wondering, is it in that book, Nancy, this technique of getting, you know, uh, radiating equality, or has this come later in your career or something you've discovered later? You know, I honestly can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but listeners can find it on her website, nancynapier.com, and it's uh, blog post number 787. So she's written 787 weeks of posts. That's wow. remarkable. Yeah. That's, that's a, a lot of That's writing. dedication and commitment. And and if, there are also videos of talks I have given at a Unity Church up in Norwalk, Connecticut, that can give an idea of how I feel about possibility and what we can draw on to help ourselves and each other. Well, we're so grateful to have you with us, Nancy. We're coming to the end of our show I wish I had picked this book up 36 years ago now, 37 years, Getting Through the Day. And anything by Nancy Napier, N-A-P-I-E-R, is highly recommended. I want to leave on this note. You do say in this book that we have chosen to stay alive. We have chosen. We The fact that we are here is a choice. Yeah. And we can take it from there. If we want to heal, we can heal. We can choose to heal and certainly uh, using this book, Getting Through the Day, and any other work by Nancy Napier will help you get there. Well, uh, and there's so much now that we didn't know even back then that can help people to heal. It's a very exciting time. We'd love to have you come back on and talk about the brain and and, <laughs> and all of the changes in psychotherapy and in our world because of our research with the brain. And, and, Dan, like and Dan Siegel's work. Well, you've been a witness to so much of this change and very much involved in it. And it's an honor having you. And you've been listening to The Positive Mind, Kevin O'Donohue, Nasima Diane Deemer. And we look forward to sharing more with you. Next week. Have a good week, folks. <laughs> <laughs>